We're going to go ahead and get started. It's really good to see you guys. Thank you all for being so faithful. Um, it is terrible outside. I did not realize how terrible it was, but like our parking lot is flooded. And so we're going to be super informal today. I don't even think with the sermon, uh, with, the, with the church service, it's going to have to be informal because it's only going to be the few of us here. But we're, uh, uh, thank you for being faithful and coming. And I'm looking so forward to what we're talking about again today. So let's open with a word of prayer and we'll get started. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that you've given us together. We thank you for your love, your truth, your mercy, and your grace. And we thank you for your word. And so, Father, I just pray that as we now open your word, as we now talk about you, as we talk about your son, as we talk about you, Holy Spirit, that you will be with us, that you will open our eyes and our ears and our minds and lives to these truths. I pray that you will help us to receive them and to believe them and to give us the knowledge and the wisdom to be able to appreciate them and to share them with others. And so be with us now in this time of study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to grab a bulletin real quick. Here you go, guys. Did, did, did you grab a bulletin on the way in? All right. So, uh, if y'all have noticed, uh, what we've started doing is putting some, what we believe as, as Baptists, as Christians, um, on the inside left flap every week, there will be part of the creedal statement. And this week is actually what we're going to be studying today. Um, our verse, um, our verse of meditation, if you will, for the Bible study today is Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's John 8, 58, and Jesus was facing a group of Orthodox Jews who believed in God, believed in Yahweh, and Jesus stood in front of them and said, before Abraham was, I am. And what he's doing is he is taking the title, the name and the identity of the voice that spoke to Moses in the bush. So when Moses asked God, he said, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? And he said, you tell him I am that I am sent you. And so Jesus is standing before this group of Orthodox Jews who their trust is in Moses. And Kelly and I were talking about this before the service. Any Muslim or Orthodox Jew uh, does believe in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. And matter of fact, the whole Old Testament, if you will. And so uh, to for Jesus to stand in front of this group of Orthodox Jews and say, I am, he was claiming the title of deity. He was Because the next verse says, and then they picked up rocks to stone him. So they knew exactly what he was claiming. And if you notice that, it says, before Abraham was, I am. And the name of I am, the name of God, I am, is a very... Uh, foundational truth that we need to grasp. Jesus didn't say, I was yeah. or I will be. Yeah. He said, I am. He's, the, he's always. Yeah. So eternity past in time and eternity future, he will always be the I am. He's always there. And so that's very important. So let's look at the creedal statement. And what I want to do is quickly review with you a couple of things that we talked about last week. 
And um, I'm going to read a lot of Bible verses to you. And then when we get into the bottom part uh, in the eight divisions of God's attributes, I'm going to ask you to read. Yes, sir. I got the last book. The which one? Uh, the reference. I got the last uh, reference. Oh, you want to read the last reference. Okay. Very good. All right. Okay. So um, the creedal statement, uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, paragraph 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, paragraph 1 says this, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit invisible without body parts or passions, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach into, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that's a mouthful, and what we're going to do is go through and break this down, because it's, it's saying a lot. But remember what we talked about last week. The goal of this chapter in the statement is to remind the church of the majesty and the holiness of God. We, we, we lose that in the world that we live in today. Often when you're talking with an atheist or an agnostic or someone who has no understanding of who God is, they will say something like this. Well, that was the God of the Old Testament. I worship the God of the New Testament. Okay? Well, what is the problem with that? By saying... I, I, that was the God of the Old Testament. That's how he was in the Old Testament. But I worship the God in the New Testament. What is the wrong with that statement? They, yeah, they're saying they worship a different God. That, or not, maybe not a different God, but a God who what? Who changes. His attitude has changed. And what we're learning in this is that God does not change. So in the same way that the angels said, holy, 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 around the throne, are they still saying it right now, this very moment, holy, holy. God is a holy God. And so we have to grasp that. We have to remember that when we approach him, that he is a holy God. And we lose sight of that in the modern world that we live in. We tend to get caught up in the run everyday uh, run of life, and we forget that God is a holy God, and he does not change. And for us, that is a wonderful assurance that he doesn't change because even though he is a holy 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 god he, we also learn that he is a merciful patient long-suffering god and so he does not change and that's one of the things that a lot of people don't understand so this chapter reminds us of his majesty and holiness we talked about last week how when we go into some of these big cathedrals there's an awe as you walk in like it's wow and there was a point for them raising the ceilings way up and for it being big and majestic because it's a reminder that we are approaching God who is in heaven. We're here on earth. 
And so even as little kids, I, we remember, I, most of you should remember as kids, we didn't run in the sanctuary. You, and you didn't go up on the, on the pulpit. Like you didn't go up around there. Like get down from there, stop playing. And, and, and not only that, but you didn't cut up in church. People didn't look at their phone. Well, we didn't have phones to look at back then. But you weren't to cut up. You weren't to, if you and your brother and sister was cutting up, your mom would pinch your ear or, or you know, and you would get in trouble. And there was a, there was an attitude of this place is different than all of the other places that I go. This isn't the movie theater. This isn't the, the, the stage. This isn't my school classroom. This is not uh, my workplace. This place is different. It's otherly. And the reason for that is because the God who we have come to worship in this building is an other, otherly God. What does it mean to say that God is holy? What does that mean? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What does that mean? Well, okay. In his holiness, in his glory, he is unapproachable. No man can approach him in his glory. God is godlike. He is God. The word holy means he's otherly. Like he's not like us. He's different. And the moment that we say God is like and compare him to something here on the earth, we have now taken the creator and brought him down to the level of creation. And what we've learned is, is that <clears throat> almost all of the heresies that have ever affected the church are heresies that involve conflating or distorting the distinction between creator and creation. When we bring God down to the creation level, we distort who he is. Yeah. When we try to put into words a holy, holy, holy God, we're going to mess up. And every example that you would ever try to use to explain the Trinity is going to fall short. Yes. Because if you can understand and explain it, then it's not otherly. It's within your grasp. And so part of this paragraph is to make sure that we understand who this God that we worship and love is and that he is a holy God. And so uh, we, in, this in this chapter, chapter 2, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about his attributes. That's what we're talking about today. Um, we're going to talk about his relations, and then we're going to talk about the Trinity in particular. That'll be the last subject that we talk about. But uh, we need to see... In paragraph one, the difference is that God is different than we are. And so what I've done, um, I'm going to do this just to save us some time so that we can get on to the second section. If you'll notice the paragraph, each one of the statements has a footnote beside it. And then below in the footnotes, there's a, a verse that involves describing what it's saying. So these guys that wrote the, these creedal statements, they're not just pulling this stuff out of thin air just so that they can have something to talk about. Like they're literally going to the pages of Scripture and pulling out of the Scriptures the things that we need to know about God. And so it's a summary statement. It's not everything there is to know about God, but it's a summary statement for you. Let's just say that you have a family member who is... Uh, if an atheist or uh, not a believer and you want to explain to them who God is, well, you can't do it just through your words. You have to use the word of God to explain him. And so what these statements do is they give us a place where we can go to for quick reference 
to explain some things about God. So if I wanted to, if somebody says to me, well, I just had it happen this week. Somebody says to me, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the New Testament. And so I just take them to a verse of scripture that says, I am God, I do not change. Like, he doesn't change. His attitude towards sin or his love and mercy and grace never alter or falter or, or slighted. They're always the same. He's constant. That's why he is, that's why we put our faith in him and not in ourselves. And so um, I want to quickly go through this, that paragraph and remind you of what it teaches us. And then we're going to take what we've learned today and narrow them down to eight uh, divisions of God's attributes. So number one, we learned that uh, God is one living God. Uh, for, and I'm going to go through these verses really quickly so that we can, in the next 10 minutes, we can get on to the, today's lesson. But he is one living God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says this, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So there it is attributing that he is one God, but it also mentions two persons of God in that statement, does it not? The Father and the Son. Um, we were talking about this this morning, and uh, who was Angela astutely brought up the fact last week when we began this lesson that it, the Christmas story is the first time that God revealed to us his triune nature. The Trinity is all in the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, you can find the Trinity. The word, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. The spirit of God hovered over the water. So we have the father speaking through the word and the spirit of God hovering over the creation. And in Genesis 1.26, it said, let us make man in our image. So it's the, the inter-Trinitarian dialogue going on there. So he's there. He's all through the Old Testament in, the, in his Trinitarian nature. But that Trinitarian nature is not revealed, explained, and opened up to us as believers until Mary gave birth and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. I had a pastor friend of mine one time say one of the most beautiful things that he, he could think of is the fact that when she wrapped him in those clothes and he laid his head down in that manger and looked up into the night sky, the very creator who created and named those stars was now in human flesh looking up through human eyes and seeing the very stars that he created. I think like it's a beautiful thing to think about, that he, is cre he created every star and named them all. And yet here he is humbled, uh, clothed himself in human flesh, so that we can know him. And so the Trinitarian nature is only revealed to us in the New Testament. And one of the things that we have to be sensitive to and understand is, is that it is only through the revelation of the Trinity that we can truly understand who God is. The Father sent the Son. The Son died on the cross to save his people and the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to come and convince those who he died to save that they belong to him. And so the Trinity is always at work in, in everything. Jesus intercedes for us with the Father as our high priest. The Holy Spirit is our comforter here. And so we need to understand that 
it's through the revelation of that Trinity that we can truly know God and enjoy Him forever. And so it's very important to see that. So God is one. Um, it says in uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, we learned about this last week, the Shema or the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. He is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And so we can understand and be sensitive to the fact that a, a Jewish person who hears me and you saying that God is three persons is actually hearing us say God is three gods. That's the problem. God is one being in three persons. Three persons. Yeah. 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 Not a form, but a person. Yeah. So uh, we need to understand that God is one. But we also understand that he is three persons. And again, wrapping our head around that is not going to be easy because immediately we have to bring him down to our level in order to try to grasp that concept. And it is not for us to box him in and contain him, but the majesty of that reality is for him to box us in and to contain us. Like for us to put our trust in him that he has revealed himself in such a way that we can know him and love him and have a relationship with him so that we can walk in the garden with him as Adam and Eve did. And so um, he subsists in and of himself. Jeremiah 10.10 10 says, But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting king. At his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. In the book of Isaiah 40.12 it says, He has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand. He has encompassed the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by measure, weighed the mountains, and the hills have been placed on his scales. And so as we quote these passages of Scripture today, we're going to see a lot of Scriptures from Jeremiah and Isaiah and from the prophets. Does anybody in our class remember what was the major sin of the nation of Israel? What was their sin? What caused them to be drug off into to Babylon? in the captivity, Assyria and Babylon? Uh, not being true to God. Okay. In what way? That's, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, not by, you know. Well, I'll give you a hint. What's the first commandment? Uh, no other God but me. Yeah. yeah. And you shall not form any statues, idols, images. That's number two, right? And remember the nation, the Israel, remember the kingdom divided and the ten... Uh, Families, uh, the ten tribes up north in Israel uh, made the two golden calves because the king up there didn't want the people coming down to Jerusalem to worship, so he made the golden calves. All right, so what you can remember is, is that the reason that the nation of Israel was drug off into slavery was because God had made them a promise that as long as they walk with him and serve him alone, that they, he would bless them and keep them and give them the land. Like there was conditional promises to them staying in that land. It was conditional promise to them being blessed of God. And the, the condition was is that they walked in obedience with him. And immediately, as soon as they got into the land, what did they do? They allowed the Canaanite gods and culture to infiltrate their families and their homes, and they became idolaters. So as we're studying these attributes of God, we realize that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all of these minor prophets are great places to go to see who God is because the prophets are warning them, you've gotten away from true God. And, we're gonna, and, and the scriptures are going to remind us of who he is. 
So he subsists of himself. He is infinite in being in perfection. It says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you, you know, sent me uh, to you. Um, he is most pure in spirit. He's most pure in spirit. God is a spirit. John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Then we learn that he is invisible. He is without parts or passions, who only has immortality dwelling in light where no man can approach. That uh, dwelling in light that no man can approach was kind of what you were bringing up, uh, Roy, that, that he is unapproachable in his glory. Uh, and so he is invisible. He's a spirit. And without parts or passions. What, what in the world does that mean, without parts or passions? Well, he's not a, a Lego set. Like you don't take the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and put them together in, in, like a puzzle. Like a, an atom or, or like an atom or a molecule. Yeah, that you can't even see. That's right. Or like a motor. Like you, you don't put him together and make him work. Right. Like he doesn't have parts. He is God. He's whole. Uh, so he is indivisible, if you will. And not only that, but he's without passions. What does that mean? The Bible uses anthropomorphic language for God all the time, does it not? Like, in other words, he uses terms, God gets angry, uh, God was grieved that he did this. Um, it, it, it uses the language of men and their emotions to express who God is. But God is beyond our emotion. Like God is not, he is without passion. Passion is uh, likeness or, or being. Uh, if a person is passionate, what does that mean? Humble. Hmm? Okay, they, they're zealous about things. They're affected by emotion, are they not? They're passionate. But God is the uh, same always. It does not change. Yeah, so God does not pull his hair out and go, I can't believe she did that. I'm going to zap her with lightning. Yeah. Like, he, he's not affected by us. He is beyond emotion. Yeah. Why is that a good thing? Hmm? Yeah, we would all be dead. That's exactly right. And the reality is, is that God created us in his image, but he created us as emotional beings, did he not? Yes. We get sad, we get happy, we have joy. And so he created us with these, these emotions, these passions, so that we could appreciate and worship and love him. Like he created us as we are so that we could be who we are. But when we begin to drag him down into our, who we are, Oh, he's mad at you now, you know. Or not only the, the whole just God that wants to zap you with lightning God, but the squishy, lovey God that just wants to cuddle with you on the couch and tell you how much he, you know, how much he cares about you. Like, he's not your high school boyfriend or girlfriend. He, and, and so he's without these passions, without passion. Um, and not only that, it says he, uh, he has immortality. He is... The I am, eternity past, present time, eternity future. Um, and then we found out that he was immutable. 
Uh, well, let me read you a couple of verses of scripture for that. It says, Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the God, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then that was 1 Timothy 1 7. Deuteronomy 4 15 and 16 says, So keep your souls very carefully, since you did not see any form on the day Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb in the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make graven images for yourself in the form of any figure or likeness of male or female. So he was talking to the children of Israel and he was reminding them that when he was on the mount, Mount Sinai, when he, when he was giving Moses the law, they were terrified. They wouldn't go anywhere near it. And not only that, he said, put a rope around the mountain and don't let any of your animals get near it because I'm a holy God and if they touch it, they'll die. But he says, when I came to you, I didn't come to you in the, any form. He came speaking as a voice and he came with his Shekinah glory, with his his brightness and his presence. And so we also learn that God is immutable. <clears throat> Malachi 3, 6, this is one of the greatest verses in the scriptures. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Just what you just said, right? Because he does not change, we are not consumed. Um, and it says he's immense, uh, but only true God... Uh, but will God truly dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Um, David said it in the psalm. He said, where can I go to hide from you? If I go to the depths of the ocean, you're there. If I go to the highest of the heavens, you're there. So he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. What does that mean? He's vast. He's immeasurable. We can't measure him. Um, he's incomprehensible and almighty. He's infinite and holy. He's most wise, most free, most absolute, working everything according to the counsel of his own immutable will. Now, I want to bring up this, these couple of passages here for you to think about. He's most wise. So does God ever make a mistake? No. Uh, most free, most absolute, Working everything according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. All right, so I want to share a couple of verses of scripture with you. Psalm 115.3 says this, but our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. What does that mean? Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. Yeah, he's the boss. Right? When you call him Lord, that's exactly what you're admitting to him. When you were a kid on the playground and your friend wanted you to do something, you said, I'm not doing that. You're not the boss of me. Y'all remember saying that when you were children. Well, when we fall on our knees and call him Lord, that's exactly what we're saying. You are the master, I'm slave. You are the boss of me. And he does what he pleases. Now, what about me and you? What if we, we're here on earth? If we do what we please, what usually happens? <laughs> we get in trouble, right? Because <laughs> but uh, God does change everything, though. Now, now I've changed my couple of places in the Bible where God says, well, okay. We'll Good. Yeah. Okay, so the, the reality is, is that the scriptures are using man-like language to help us to grasp the concept of God. So um, there's an example in the book of Jonah where Jonah goes and preaches, God said he's going to destroy Nineveh. Yeah. And Jonah goes and preaches, and the people repent, and it said, and God 
repented of the destruction that he was going to do. All right. Well, the reality is Nineveh does get destroyed like a century later. They do get destroyed because they turn right back into idolatry again. But God does not change. The Bible uses language to help us to understand what it means for God to be a... So, in other words, God's holiness and justice never changed. Because had they not turned, what would have happened? And his mercy and his grace never changes because because of their repentance, what did he do? He forgave them. So it's used in a language to help us to understand from our point of view who he is. But the reality is his plan and his will for the nation of Nineveh never changed based on what they did. They changed based on who he was. You see how that works? And it's really, that's a... That's a great point you're bringing up because there's several instances in the Bible where, so you'll see in the conversation between Moses and God all the time. Moses would be like, just kill these people or like, give, I don't want this job. Like, and, and, uh, and God will say to Moses, just step out the way I'm going to wipe them out. Right. And what did Moses say? No, no, don't do that because if you do that, if you do that, then Pharaoh will see that you can't keep your promises. And the reality is, is these commands that God has given are not because he's changing, but he's wanting us to recognize the change in ourselves. Think about your prayer life. If God never changes and his will is going to be done, what's the point of praying? You know what I mean? Like if everything's going to happen just like he plans it to, why, why even pray? Well, why? Why do we do that? Because he wants us to know ourselves. And he wants us to stop trusting ourselves and trusting him. So when we pray, we pray, your will be done. And what happens is you pray for 100 years over something that never changes. And the reason is because you're praying contrary to his will. So his desire is for you to talk with him and pray to him. And allow his spirit and his word to conform your prayer life to his will. But, but again, he doesn't change. The scriptures uses language to help us to appreciate who he is. But the change is always in the people, not in him. Does that make sense? So in that story of, of Nineveh, God's justice and holiness was never altered. Had they not repented, he would have destroyed them. Yeah. Finally, he went to them and obeyed. Right. So that was his first order of his orders. Yes. Was to do that. So it was no surprise then. This was the plan from the beginning. That's exactly right. He pouted because God forgave him because those people don't deserve forgiveness. Those are Ninevites. Those are awful people. But think about this. When he was on that ship, he was running from God, and God still used him to proclaim the gospel to a bunch of sailors on a ship. It said when they threw him overboard that they offered up praises and sacrifices to God. So even in his unwillingness, God was using him to proclaim his truth to, to people. And it's just beautiful to know that despite our passions and despite who we are, God still can use us and God can use us to 
for his good, for our good, and for his glory. It's really cool to think about that. All right, so uh, our God is in heaven, he does what he pleases. Now it says this in Isaiah 46.10. God declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient of times, things which have not been, saying, my counsel, I will be established, or my counsel will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Have you ever thought about the reality that when God makes a prophecy, he's making it based upon his eternal decree? In other words, God is not making a prophecy and then throwing it out there and putting his dependence on Jonah to preach or Joseph to trust Mary or Mary to do what she's supposed to do. When God makes prophecies, he's making those prophecies and declaring them based on who he is And the reason that they are established and the reason that they come to fruition is not because of us, but in spite of us. Think about that. When God makes a prophecy, when he, in Genesis 3.15, when he said that one day, Eve, one day you're going to have a baby that's going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to bruise your heel, uh, or uh, the serpent will bruise his heel but then he's going to take that heel and crush the serpent's head. He was making a prophetic statement about the nature of Messiah when he comes, that he would be born of a woman's seed, not of a man's seed, and that that seed, the seed of the woman, would crush the serpent's head. And he was making that thousands of years before Mary ever conceived. And think about all of the random acts that had to take place for that, all of that to fall out. We talked about it last week in the sermon about how the, the, uh, this Herod uh, wanted to have a tax, so all those people had to go back to their, their hometowns. And it just so happened that uh, David, uh, the city of David was where Joseph was from, and they went there. And then you go back to the book of Micah, and you see where, uh, or Zephaniah or Micah, and it says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so God uses all of these random acts of passionate people and mutable people who are constantly changing, constantly in flux, constantly rebelling against him. And he's taking all of us and he's still making sure that his will is done. It's a pretty impressive thing to think about. And what he's saying in that statement in Isaiah is, is that he declares the end from the beginning, the ancient of times which have not been saying my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He's the only one that can predict the future because he knows it. He's the one that decrees it. And so he is a God who is most free, most wise. And that's the thing that we need to understand. He's good and he's wise. And he's doing these things because he's good and he's wise and we are not. And we have to learn to yield to his sovereignty in our lives. And that's not an easy thing to do. Because the basis behind all idolatry is this. If God is God, then I'm not. We like to be sovereign. You like to be in control. I like to be in control. I don't like the weather. I complain about it all the time. I don't like the fact that my stock is soaked right now. Right? Why? Because I I like to be comfortable. I like to have dry socks on. Learned that in the military. But the point being is, is that I had no control over the weather this morning. But God did. And despite all the flood of either, despite everything, he knew every ounce, every drop of rain that was going to drop and where it was going to hit. There's not a radical molecule in the entire universe 
and even in evil, when, when it comes to evil, God is not the creator or the author of evil, but God does allow it. We'll finish with this thought. Of course, we won't ever get through any of this. But we'll get, I'll finish with this thought. Um, Martin Luther, you, y'all guys know who he is. He's the guy that started the, the Lutheran church, but he was one of the early reformers. And Luther had a saying, and this is what he used to say. He said, even the devil is God's devil. What does he mean when he says that? Even the devil is God's devil. Well, God, yes. And when he created him, he created him the highest. Of all. He was the archangel. What does the arch mean? The, the peak, right? He was the highest. So of all of creation, of all created beings, sun, moon, stars, birds, bees, flowers, trees, skies, angels, of all of creation, Satan was the highest of all creation. Now, you might say, wait a minute, now Jesus is higher than the devil, right? But why do I say that Satan was created the highest of all creation? Why is Jesus not the highest of all creation? Good. He wasn't created. He's the creator. That's very good. You see how that works? So of all of the creation, that Satan was the highest. So in the curse, when he told the, the serpent, he said, from now on, uh, you will crawl on your belly in the earth. It was a metaphorical statement that you've gone from the highest of all of creation to the lowest. You've been brought down. But when Luther said, even the devil is God's devil, what does he mean? Yeah, and God, does a God allow the devil to do the evil that he does? He doesn't cause it, but he does allow it. Why? Yeah, to this point and no further. Even the sea, he says that. He tells the sea, to this point and no further. Every wave that crashes on the beach shore and rolls up, God says, stop right there, that's enough. Like, he's in control of everything. But when it comes to the devil, God allows him to be evil and allows him to do evil things. Well, what have we learned in our Bible study about Joseph and and his brothers? did Did the things that they do, were they evil? horribly evil. God allowed it, did he not? Yeah, God allowed it, Joseph's brothers, to sell him into slavery. Why? Why did God allow that? Yeah, what was the purpose? Yeah, because he needed Joseph in Israel as the second in command behind the Pharaoh that when the famine came, his people could get there and be saved. Egypt, I'm sorry. You see, what, see how that works? Yeah. Well, think about this. What, what did, uh, David, you shared this with us. What is your favorite verse in that story? Uh, God meant it, uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for You meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. Yeah. Joseph was talking to his brothers. He said, don't be sad. Right. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Yes. And the, the greatest expression of that is what? cross. God took the wicked, evil men, nailed Jesus to the cross, and the devil was thinking the whole time, I finally got him. I'm going to wipe this promise out. That's what he'd been trying to do when he wiped out the children of Israel. Uh, when Moses, remember Moses, they had to hide Moses because the Pharaoh was just trying to destroy all of the little boys, 
right? And we learn in, in the Christmas story, what did he try to do with them little boys? He tried to wipe them out. Why? Because the devil knew that the seed of the woman was going to come along that was going to get him. And the devil was thinking as he was nailing Jesus, having Jesus nailed to the cross, got him. Finally got that promise wiped out. But the promise with wiping out one of God, the problem with wiping out one of God's promises is what? God don't break his promises. And so even in the most brutal thing that ever took place on the face of this earth, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might know the righteousness of Christ. So when, when Luther was saying, even the devil is God's devil, like even the bad things that happen in this world around us are God is not in heaven pulling his hair going, oh no, what am I going to do now? Like everything has a plan and a purpose. And the plan and the purpose behind all of it is our good and his glory. Our good and his glory. One day when we know as we are known, we'll be able to look back on this life and go, oh, why didn't I see that? So uh, we'll, we'll continue with this uh, same paragraph next week. Y'all do have the handout now. I'm going to ask you guys, if you will, if you get a chance this week and you have some time to do some meditation and some studying, if you'll look at these eight divisions of God's attributes and read those um, verses of Scripture, they'll help you to have a jump on next week when we get back into it. So um, let me, let's do this. Let's see. I want to ask one person something that spoke to them in the lesson today or something that stood out to you in the lesson that we talked about. I want to ask two of you. I'm going to ask you and Kelly. Something that, that, that may sp- have sparked or piqued your interest or something that... So, what would be the negative to saying that God doesn't have passion? What would be the ne- negative? Like, what would be the negative connotation? And he doesn't care. That's exactly right. That would be the problem with that. But we know he cares. He's all caring. He's all loving. He's all kind. He's all good. Um, what would be the positive to that? That he doesn't have passion. He doesn't change. That's the, the point of him not having passion is that. So in other words, when Jesus was standing at the grave of Lazarus, he wept. But he is clothed in humanity. He is expressing a human emotion. He was sad. But think about this. Why was he weeping? If he's God, why is he weeping? Because he knew what, what was he fixing to do in just like a matter of a minute? Raising from the dead. So God is not weeping. Jesus, God the Father is not weeping. Jesus clothed in humanity is weeping because he is, uh, identifying with his creation. He, he humbled himself and knew what it was to be hungry, knew what it was to be tired. That way, when you pray to him and you say, God, I'm wore out, like this job is killing me, 
or these kids are driving me crazy, or please help my wife, she's really sick. He can identify with those things. And so we have a God who does not change, but knows you inside and out and loves you for who you are and can hear you and understand you and appreciate all of the things that you're going through. Well, we do know that after he did it, the Pharisees said, we've got to kill him and Lazarus now. So part of it was to, the miracles that he did while he was on earth was to confirm his words, who he said he was. He said he was God in the flesh, and only God can raise somebody from the dead. So there was a, I mean, there was a godly purpose in all of that, and healing the blind and, and causing the deaf to hear and casting demons out of people like he was coming and expressing that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, that he is. And yes, there was compa- there was certainly compassion on them as a family. He loved them very much. But, but again, remember what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid bringing God down and putting him in our box, like making him like us because he's not. He's holy. And um, I'm glad y'all both, y'all both brought that up because we are emotional people, are we not? We are. Yeah. From time to time, you'll catch me in the pulpit preaching and I, like, he really, like, touches my heart. Like, we're supposed to be emotional people. But our emotions and our passions get us into trouble a lot of time, too, because of our fallenness. He is not susceptible to change. He is not susceptible to human passion, if you will. And it's something good to wrestle with. I hope that this is, I hope that these lessons are giving you things to like wrestle with and to think about. Yes. To think about that there is a God who makes prophecies and he makes sure that those prophecies are fulfilled because he's God. And if they don't get fulfilled, he's breaking his promise. And the reason he can make those statements is because he's the one that decreed that they will happen. He's God. He's in control. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together today. Um, I do thank you that you are a God who is uh, invisible, most wise, most good, most merciful, most kind, most just. I thank you for your mercy and your tenderness and your grace and your love that sent your son Jesus to save a people such as us. And we just pray now that as we go into the uh, service today, uh, please be with us and help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.